Welcome back to the Power Sports Nutrition Podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today, I'm really excited to have with us Melissa Perrine. Mel is a para, or was, past tense, a para-alpine skier. And she's a four-time Paralympian and multiple medalists, both at World Championships and at the Paralympic Games. So welcome to the podcast, Mel. Thanks for having me, Liz. Oh, it's great to have you. I'm really glad that I was able to snabble a little bit of your time. And even though you've only recently retired, I think four Paralympic Games is a pretty decent innings for anyone, uh, let alone someone who is competing in a pretty kamikaze sport. <laughs> kamikaze is a great way to explain it, actually. Um, <laughs> yeah, four Paralympic Games. It's been a long journey, but it's it's been an enjoyable one as well for the most part. Good. I'm glad that you found it that way. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, your impairment, and how you got into alpine skiing? I guess how I got into alpine skiing was a little bit by accident, actually. I, you know, was approached by a friend who coached at a gymnastics club because I did gymnastics when I was a kid. Uh-huh. Um, when I was about 13 and she asked me to come along to a disabled kids skiing camp and I was you know 13 and I wanted a week off school and had absolutely no idea what skiing was so I said yes. <laughs> As you do. <laughs> As you do and you know I think like oh, there's, there's, there's a quote out there in ski cultures like your life is ruined from the first chairlift ride <laughs> and I think that's true you know <laughs> you know I, I was hooked from that first that first camp so took the opportunity to take that week off school every year until like I graduated yeah. and then decided to take myself off to Canada for a disabled like a, a para development camp I suppose mm-hmm. that I'd heard of in Canada thinking really that it wasn't going to come of anything that I personally just wanted to spend more time on snow wanted to get better at what I loved and didn't want to go to school anymore for a <laughs> second So, uh, you know, I spent a couple of months over in Canada and fell in love with the racing side of my sport. And, you know, I went back the next year um, and then uh, in 2009 in the Australian season, Steve Graham, the then coach of the Australian para-alpine team, watched me ski behind a snowboarder in Perisher Uh and, you know, invited me to come away with the team to New Zealand the following well, two weeks later and I mm-hmm. guess the rest is history. I spent the following 12 and a half years travelling around the world as um, as a ski racer. My And, again, that was incredibly entertaining, especially, you know, considering that I am legally blind. Yeah. Um, that's where the kamikaze part of skiing comes yeah. in, I guess. yeah. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I have less than 5% of my vision and I was born this way though, so I don't really know anything different. I personally think that the rest of the population has superpowers with their eyes. I uh, uh-huh. don't know how you guys live like that. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it's been a bit of a whirlwind actually. It's It's been great. But, you know, I've never kind of let my vision stop me. I had an older brother who was very, very interested in sport Mm-hmm. and well I guess my entire family is very interested in sport we lived in a rural area growing up so mum you know I was a very clumsy child um for obvious reasons mm-hmm. and I kept tripping over things and falling downstairs and running into doorways so my mother you know thinking 
rightly so, that sport is the answer to everything, put me in gymnastics as a kid. Which is um, a really interesting. Yeah, but it's an interesting sport, isn't it, in terms of something to put you into with your vision impairment. Like gymnastics is not what I would have thought of, but it seems quite logical now. Did you find that it really helped with your clumsiness? Um, I think by the time I had recollection, yeah, it most definitely did. You know, I, I was able to catch myself when I tripped on things, which mm-hmm. I think was the big thing, you know, preventing injury. And it really developed my spatial awareness. You know, I don't think mum really, really considered the fact that it was you know, a vision-based sport. I think she really just cared about me figuring out where my body was mm-hmm. um, in relation to my environment. And that it most certainly succeeded with that for sure and it was just a lot of fun like I had the best time as a gymnast I competed up until the age of 14 and then I coached for five years so wow cool I loved it love the sport still even make sure that I watch whatever international competition that I can when I'm aware that it's on <laughs> and so can you tell us what your I guess your vision impairment diagnoses is or or are I believe you've got more than yes. one vision impairment i do actually i've got four different conditions i won the genetic lottery (laughs) um so i've got i was born with cataracts and i had my natural lenses removed as a baby as when Mm -hmm. i was three months old so i don't have natural lenses in my eyes i had prosthetics implanted when i was 12 however because of the other three conditions i've got which are nystagmus which means my eyes jump back and forth constantly and i can't control that Mm-hmm. It's almost like, you know, I'm shaking my head all the time. My mm-hmm. eyes just tremor constantly. I've also got glaucoma. Basically, it's like the pressure in my eye can blow up, um, mm. which can cause irreparable damage to my optic nerve. So I'm on medication for that. Yep. And I've got microphthalmia, which means that my my eyes are were underdeveloped as a fetus or mm-hmm. in my mum's womb. So I have very small eyes, as in the eyeball itself, and I have very tiny malfunctioning pupils. So they can't expand and contract to the same degree as everybody else's. So I don't respond well to changes in light, basically. Bright sun, complete darkness, I'm totally useless in. Right. Yeah, so all of that has led to essentially vision. I don't have my full peripheral vision. I can only see about 90 degrees or probably less than that, actually, probably closer to 60 And then I guess the easiest way to explain what I can see um, for people who don't like get acuity numbers would be what I, what what a a regular sighted person without the use of glasses can see at a hundred meters to the end of a football field. That same thing would have to be five meters or closer away from me for me to be able to perceive it with the same clarity. And so when you're skiing, can you see anything or can you actually like because things are moving pretty fast when you're skiing can you see anything or are you more just responding to the to your guide who's in front of you I'm more just responding to my guide I can see a little bit I can you know I can I can see up to about five to ten meters in front of me with a degree of accuracy I probably think I can see more than what I can but you know I can get around on snow as well if I'm going really slowly but in racing I guess what I see when I race it's my guide's bright orange jacket in front of me Mm -hmm. I can see the back of her skis we only ski about 
no more, never, never any more than 10 metres. 10 metres is like the end of our range of, of mm-hmm. distance apart. We prefer to ski close to five metres apart. I see all the white stuff, which is fun. And then <laughs> I, I basically notice there's a gate there when it smacks me in the head. Yeah, yeah. But you've got no concept of how far away um, it is until that happens. Pretty much, yeah. I can, uh, through pure experience and, and memory of how a turn feels and, you know, when I pick up a gate, I can kind of guess mm-hmm. where the gate is. But I actually try not to do that because it can get me into a lot of trouble because, mm. um, you know, with the undulation in terrain out there, which I can't perceive at all, you know, I can kind of, you know, I can I can make the wrong guess. Yeah. So I essentially, yep. I stopped trying. I, I I stopped trying to guess and just let my guide, you know, tell me what was going on because it was safer. Um, sure. What's the fastest speed you've actually sort of been clocked at on on the ski slope? Over one hundred and twenty. Okay, um, kilometers I don't per always hour. Always ski at one hundred and twenty now. I hope not. <laughs> kilometers, not miles. Kilometers. Per hour. Yep. Yep. No, one hundred and twenty k an hour. I think it was something like one twenty. 127 uh, something along those lines i'm not entirely sure it was in a downhill actually yeah uh, so and it felt like a relatively normal downhill speed to me so i yep. guess that was a regular when i was racing downhill which is the fastest of the of the five of the four skiing disciplines yeah um, for alpine skiing disciplines the racing yeah and it was yeah, it, it was fast. It was really fast. Yeah. It was fast Did it, so it didn't feel particularly fast. It just felt normal. Well, it felt normal for downhill. Downhill mm. is petrifying. <laughs> it is psychotic. It is the absolute biggest adrenaline rush I've ever experienced in my life, and I've done a lot of dumb things. So. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so stick for stupid adrenaline-causing things. Okay, and so you've got the five disciplines. Can you just quickly, really quickly run through what those five disciplines are? Sure thing. So this downhill, the the crazy one, basically massive, big, arcing, sweeping turns. You're pretty much just going as fast as you possibly can, point A to point B with very little deviation. You know, Mm -hmm. turn radius of about 50 to 60 metres sort of yep. thing, very, very big open turns. Um, then the super giant slalom or super G as it's colloquially known. Turn radius is closer to 30 to, 30 to 50 depending on the course set and like whether there's a delay or not. So it's high speed. It's, it's the other of the speed events, but it requires a little bit of a faster transition between turns. You can't just kind of like glide into it. You actually have to move as well. So it's more dynamic. Mm-hmm. But still really fast. You can still reach you still reach speeds of, you know, one ten to twenty one twenty K an hour. Mm-hmm. But there's less room for timing errors. Yep. Uh, and then you got Giant Slalom. That's the first of the technical events. And turn radiuses there are about seventeen to twenty-five meters. And it's quite quick in transition. It, it's very it's very foot to foot, it's very dynamic, it's a very hard one to get right. It's one that I always struggled with. And then there's slalom. Turn radius is anywhere from 8 to 12 to 13 metres. Very, very, very quick. The one where everyone's smacking into poles and everyone asks me, is that intentional? The answer is yes, <laughs> um, because it's just easier and you don't have to ski as far. Yeah, <laughs> You can go straighter. 
yeah, that that's that one. It's very, it's like, it's mass agility. You're just bouncing from one foot to the other, consists constantly for over a minute. It's incredibly exhausting, but it's very rewarding too, I found in my later years. Mm-hmm. And then the fifth discipline is a super combined, which is a run of speed, either super G or alpine or downhill, sorry, depending on what event you're racing, and mm-hmm. a run of slalom with the combined total yep. of those runs deciding who wins. And how long would a downhill take you to complete on average? I know I know everyone's different, depends on mm. the snow, it depends on the wind conditions, but you said that the the slalom takes about a minute, so roughly by comparison how long does a downhill take? Any I guess it it anywhere from you'd be looking at downhill would be a minute 15 to a minute 45. Mm-hmm. Some slaloms can reach over a minute. They're the ones that we consider torture. Um, <laughs> downhills are a little bit longer in duration, generally speaking. Yeah, but they're still under two minutes. Like these events are still very short, relatively speaking. Yeah. They're high-intensity events where there's a lot of lactate buildup. It's a lot of leg strength and the need to be able to shift your weight pretty quickly at times, correct? Definitely, yeah. So they are short in duration. They're all under two minutes exactly like you said and requires a lot of fast twitch muscle energy, a lot of a lot of quick decisions, a lot of quick movements within that time, and it's repetitive. Mm. Those movements have to be as strong and as precise from the first turn to the last turn. It's a dangerous environment. It, it really is, and if you're not conditioned to the point where you can handle that environment and that that energy requirement then one you're not going to ski very fast and two you could really hurt yourself have you ever had any major injuries uh yeah actually I fractured my pelvis attempting to stop at the end of a downhill with my uh, rear end rather than my feet in the finish area of a downhill in Italy in 2010 so. ouch <laughs> So that was that was a fractured pelvis, uh, fractured pelvis, torn labrum in my hip, and that was about nine weeks before, oh no, about ten weeks before the Paralympics. Um, so after a you know five week recovery time at home for a fractured pelvis, I then left to go to America to race a downhill about seven weeks after I fractured my pelvis. I don't recommend it. It kind of sucks. I was going to say, how did that um, go I for you? Games, I didn't do too bad. <laughs> In a lot of pain. It hurt. It mm. really hurt. Oh. And is that what kind of led you to wanting to be a physio? Yeah, I think like I, I, always, I always knew that I wanted to be in healthcare yep. uh, during my life. Actually growing up, being completely ignorant of the fact that I was blind. Well, I knew that I was blind, but I didn't realise, you know, what the repercussions were. My main goal in life was to be Hawkeye from MASH. <laughs> so I essentially wanted to be a medic in the army, but, you know, uh-huh. they, don't give, uh, they don't give blind girls commissions, unfortunately. No, unfortunately, <laughs> that's generally one of the first things that rules anyone out from, <laughs> from the defence forces is low vision. I, I, I didn't. I did not consider the the practicalities of my of my you know lifelong ambition. <laughs> but I always knew that I wanted to be in healthcare. I just didn't know how to get there or what exactly I wanted to do. And honestly, I think you're right. That that first real insight into how sports medicine worked and how it could allow 
you know, you hear the injury like a fractured pelvis and you automatically assume that, well, that, that, that's, that's done and done. That's, you know, so mm. many months rehab. Mm. And, you know, I had a team around me that was amazing, absolutely amazing. Any, anyone who, who's worked the Australian Paralympic Committee knows Doc Jeff, who's, you know, a complete legend of sport as far as yep. I'm concerned. You know, so he and he was able to, you know, nurture me back and, and you know, create solutions, which yep. got me back on the snow in a much quicker time frame than, you know, I expected and the general public would expect. And I think that really opened my eyes as to what a physiotherapist could do for their athletes in supporting them to achieve their goals. And, you know, that, that kind of just resonated really closely with me. So... I finished off the masters that I was doing at that point in time, which was one of, of sport and exercise science as a masters, and then I went on to start physiotherapy in 2012. Yeah, and, yeah, and and so you completed three degrees, correct, in pretty much the entire time that you were racing. Yes. And so, correct. how do yes. how, how do you juggle that? Because some of those, like physiotherapy, you have to have there's a certain amount of compulsory time that you have to spend in practice in that period of time. How do you manage, how did you manage that workload of, of study with a lot of travel required to do your sport? Because you training know, and racing. Yeah, and- training and racing. And, and let's, yeah. you know, Australia doesn't have a great snow season. So you literally did have to spend a lot of time on the road. So how did you manage that? We're, uh, you know, I can't juggle balls, but I seem to be able to juggle my life. So uh, <laughs> it, it, it honestly, it, it, it took a lot of work and a lot of understanding from a lot of people. So it's like I, I didn't really, you know, it's only like looking back on my career that I realised how many people actually helped me achieve that. You know, I had a family that realised that they were incredibly important to me so were willing to fit around my time schedule to 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 like to be able to see me, which was you know very generous of them to be that flexible with their time so that I, I could still have them as a major part of my life. Yep. The wonderful thing about the Australian education system, um, well, there's two great things that really helped me in this. One, our school year starts with the calendar years, mm-hmm. which means we get basically all of summer off, which for us is, you know, November in the university schedule, November through to end of February, early March. Which is the Northern Hemisphere winter. Exactly, exactly. So I was able, my international travel was always safe. You know, mm. I might I might have had to do an exam on the road here or there or, you know, join the team a week later after they left, but I could always make it work for the majority of my my schooling. Um, the last year of physiotherapy was a lot harder. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of like the Australian season, you know, we had, I had coaches and team management that I think one of the things when I, when I first joined the team, there was a lot of us doing university degrees. Um, mm-hmm. We had a member of the team doing, well, we had two me- members of the team doing medicine. We had another one doing physio as well we had an osteopath that was studying we had an engineer that was still studying so they were used to the first question you know in 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 april when season was planning is like cool when's everyone's uni breaks how Mm -hmm. can we work it so we were all at the snow at the same time Mm -hmm. to get these training camps going so you know if we could get four four to six weeks on snow during the season that was the goal 
and it was achievable working around everyone's breaks in school. And then when we were at home, we were, you know, we were were treated like adults. We were responsible for our own off-snow training programs, you know, working Mm. with our own coaches or the coaches from the N-Swiss or AIS, you know, to make sure that we were in peak physical condition to make our on-snow time as efficient and high quality as possible. And I remember when you were doing that, you you had some fairly long travel times from training to, say, university or or vice versa and then to home, you know, which was pr- almost always on public transport. Oh. <laughs> How did you manage all of your nutrition so needs? Cool. So cool. Yeah. How did you manage all of your nutrition sh- needs? Because I just remember you said you used to spend an inordinate amount of time travelling, which meant as, as well as, you know, you, your university time and your, your training time. How do you fit all your nutrition in around that? Well, I'm sure you'll know probably not well to start with. <laughs> Hopefully it got better. It, it, it definitely got better. It definitely did get better, yeah. Yeah, so I was, you know, living in the Southern Highlands in New South Wales because I had a job there and I was studying at universities in Sydney, either Sydney University or Western Sydney University. So, which was about uh, Sydney University was a two and a half hour trek from my place each way. So, it was about five hours a day on public transport. So, in terms of nutrition, the first year that I was doing that, honestly, I didn't handle it very. I didn't. I did not deal with it very well. I was eating a lot of fast food. You know, I tried to make it as healthy as I could, but in reality, I didn't know what was going into my body because I don't think I really at this point in my career, it was the first two two years of my career, and I didn't really understand how much nutrition played a massive role in my energy levels. You know, I was wondering, you know, I was getting home at, like, after school, I was getting home at 5 o'clock, I'd go to work for two or three hours, and then I'd go to the gym after that sort of thing. And I was wondering why I was completely destroyed and my workouts were crap all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, eventually, eventually I smartened up. And realized that food played a massive role in my fatigue levels. Yep. As well as my incredibly poor sleep hygiene. I, I'm a great athlete, I swear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's all about problem solving, isn't it? And then I guess like I really started, I prioritized at least one, like a couple of hours a day. I got this down to two hours on a weekend, actually. Meal prep was my saving grace, honestly. Mm-hmm. It really was. You know, I think I worked with, with you and nutritionists that came after you with it, that supported our team to, you know, find food options that travelled well, that didn't need reheating, that also gave me what I needed throughout the day in terms of, like, maintaining my energy so I didn't – because I was on the go constantly. I was yep. always having to keep my brain active. And then I was also, at this point in time, struggling with epilepsy medication and the effect that that had on my brain my energy and my weight as well so it Mm -hmm. was a very complex situation i've never done things the easy way (laughs) so but you you took it took it in your snacks i tried to um (laughs) i guess traveling with appropriate snacks was a big thing to me if i was if i was hungry i you know i could reach into my bag and find something that was that was you know better for me to eat Yep. Than anything else. And what? So, give um, us an example of some of those snacks. 
you know, I love, I love crunchy, I love crunchy things. So things like fruit, obviously apples and pears were a big part of my diet. I really love them. And they'll think I don't, I've never, ever stomached breakfast well. So, you know, when you're leaving home at 4.30 to get to, to uni by seven, sort of, you know, mm. probably 4.30, 5.30, that sort of time, the last thing you want to do, or the last thing I want to do is eat. Um, yep. But I could stomach a pear or I could stomach an apple. So I always had like a couple of apples in my bag. Muesli bars, I used to eat one or two of those a day. Chickpeas became a, a favourite of mine, dried chickpeas. Mm-hmm. Um, you can get these ones in Australia that are like, covered in paprika which are fantastic nice little boost of carb en- energy carrot sticks celery and then if i ate it in the morning i could take cream cheese with me as well so that went mm-hmm. really quite nicely with that some dried fruit and nuts as well traveled really well yeah they were basically mainstays in my bag because yeah. they could yeah. stay in my bag for a couple of days uh yeah i didn't get around to eating them you know they stored well in little containers they didn't take up too much room and they're things that I could snack on during lectures without, you know, disturbing my class as well. So that was mm. pretty much what lived in my bag on a daily basis. Yeah, I think I spoke to another athlete who said that they loved canned tuna, but the rest of the class didn't like it. <laughs> I when they cracked open some canned tuna, the smell exactly. went everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Okay. And and <laughs> so you chose that well. And you said also that you meal prepped meals that didn't need to be heated or cooked so can you give us a couple of examples of say what would be a meal on the road like as you were traveling so things like i think what yeah on public transport so one of my favorite one of my favorite things that i found did really well was pasta salads Mm -hmm. because i get a little bit of carb in there and i used to have like a pasta salad with like chicken and and pesto and a little Mm -hmm. bit of a little bit of cheese in there as well and a lot of spinach because I love spinach. Someone mm. once recommended that I put rocket in there, but I don't like that. So <laughs> spinach worked really well for me. Yep. And then capsicum as well in there. So that was that was a little bit different, and I enjoyed that. So sat like meaty salads was basically the thing that I went with. Yep. They lived in my fridge all week, and then I, you know, I could they they'd survive until lunchtime if they were in like a nice hard container. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'd eat those when I was on the road. Mm. Awesome. And there was something that wouldn't offend the senses of the people around me. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Fair enough. And so what are some of, what do you think is one of the big things that you learned over that, I mean, four Paralympics, so that's, you know, four quads, 16 years, give or take of of training, competing. What what are some of the big learnings that you can walk away with from that? Yeah. I think I mentioned really briefly before that, I've got epilepsy and I had at the beginning of my career, I took medication which actively made me gain weight. Mm-hmm. And as an athlete, that's something really quite hard to understand. You know, I'm working really hard. I'm traveling all the time. I'm on the road constantly. And I'm doing what I can to eat as properly as I can and I'm still gaining weight. Yep. So I thought I, I had a really poor relationship with food, thinking of it as good and bad rather than as, you know, something that should be enjoyed and that you know is used to help me do what I love to do. Yeah. Um, you know, medic, medic, my medical, my medical situation eventually got sorted out once I changed doctors, thankfully. Mm-hmm. Um, and but it still took me a, a couple of years to actually actually grasp that I could enjoy what I was eating. It 
was allowed to have flavor. I could eat sugar if I wanted to. In, in mm-hmm. It was all about proportion and, yep. you know, just making sure what I was eating was fueling what I wanted to do. And, you know, occasionally for me, because I that was eating more carbohydrate because my body responds really, honestly, really well to to carbs. I have a lot of energy when I eat them and I've tried like high protein diets and it was suggested to me at one point to go keto to help with the epilepsy management. I think I tried it for about three days and I felt like a slug. So that went. So, you know, big thing is, you know, I I learned to have a healthy relationship with food and learned to enjoy it and that I was allowed to enjoy it and that being an athlete didn't mean that I had to restrict myself constantly and that I could find ways to enjoy my food. Yeah. And I guess the other thing was learning to be flexible with what I was eating Yeah. and understanding how different foods to what I usually ate would still give me the same nutrients. Travelling overseas, we'd often travel to Europe in the winter and when we, you know, six or seven years ago the produce that we're used to in Australia we're so lucky we have great produce great mm. meats great fresh vegetables all the time always available to us that wasn't the case when we went to Europe all the time yeah, yeah. it was hard to find those the vegetables and salad mixes that you'd always eat and then you add in a winter environment on top of that things became pickled all the time mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you'd be going to place you'd be eating in hotels you'd be eating hotel food. So you had to you had to kind of like I had to figure out portion sizes and appropriate them to what would be served in a hotel and how I could go to the supermarket and understand labels in German. Yes. And figure out what foods um, yeah. would still give me what I needed in a really yeah. complex environment. So I think they're the two big lessons I took away from from yeah. you know eating and learning how to eat as an athlete. And, I mean, I think the first one makes a lot of sense, like the interaction with your medication and what you're trying to achieve. It, for some athletes it can be quite counterproductive, I guess, in some ways. And so I, I think it's interesting that you said that you found a different doctor who was able to provide you with a different solution to that issue. And I think, you know, not everyone is willing to go and look for for a, a second opinion or for another option. And so I think that's a really good thing that you're able to come out with a, a great outcome with that because then you were able to fuel yourself appropriately and, and feel like what you should feel like with training, mm. that you can do all the training and you you can recover effectively and and feel like the athlete that you've actually been working hard to to be. Yeah, it, it did take a couple of years, honestly. You know, I was I was training away from the AIS. I was training away from N-Swiss, so I w- didn't have oversight. And I was training according to everyone's programs. I was doing everything that I thought personally at this time that I should be doing. I was eating what I was told to eat. I was, and I was still gaining weight. Mm. I still wasn't as fit as I, like, all the work I was putting in. So the general perception you know, at first glance was like I wasn't doing the work, Mm. Um, which is understandable. You know, you see an athlete who's gaining weight, who's um, not as fit as she should be during every testing and stuff like that. It's like, what the hell is going on? And it actually is like I was 
I ended up doing food diaries and training logs over a three-month period, and then I think they realised there was a massive mismatch there, mm. and yep. I'm just like, it's not working. Like, whatever I'm doing is not working. Yeah. Um, and it was actually through the input of Snow Australia mm-hmm. who helped me realise that my new, my the main contributing factor to all my fatigue was you know, my epilepsy, my medication. Mm. And I just kind of thought that was how it was. I just had to put up with the, you know, with the side the effects of my medication. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it turns out that I didn't actually have to, that I was allowed to seek, I was allowed to seek outside, Yeah, I guess, counsel. And yep. it was it was Snow Australia that took me out of, like, I guess the, the public health scheme and got me to see a different doctor who specialised in sports. And that was yeah. that great medical team around me again. Um, yeah. But it was like also a knowledge that I could I could choose my medical professional. I could choose my doctor. And if, if someone wasn't listening to me, because the worst part about this is like the medication I was on didn't actually control my seizures. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what's the point in the end? So yeah. It's really shit. Oh, man. So yeah, it wasn't until I changed doctors or was told that I was allowed to change doctors. Yeah. Because doctors won't tell you that. They won't tell no. you that you're allowed to change doctors. That I found out that I was on the wrong medication for for me and that once I was able to swap at a gradual process, I was able to become a much fitter, much healthier version of myself, doing everything that I was actually doing, basically. And, and it was with really your... the medication that... Yeah, that and, I... and with your seizures being controlled at the same time. Yeah, my uh, control came back. I honestly felt like I had control over my life again. Yeah. And that that was fantastic for me. You know, yeah. I didn't feel like and then then that was when the learning process about, you know, food not being good or bad really had to kind of like I had to let that sink into my body. Let that sink into my brain, sorry. You know, it was really you know, whilst I was I was probably trying to restrict myself too much when I was on the the first medication, I found that I needed to eat like more, I guess, mm. than what I've been allowing myself to eat. Yeah. Because I was, I was dropping weight. I was, and it's like you need, it's like you're dropping too fast. You need to eat more. I'm like, but, but I shouldn't be eating more. So there was that massive education process yeah. and learning yep. process that kind of went yep. into. It's like you're an athlete. You need to eat. You're expending so much energy. It's like you need to eat food. I'm like, oh, yeah. okay, then I suppose so. <laughs> yeah. And it wasn't a lesson that was learned in weeks. It was a lesson that was learned in months and years and it, it you know every, even now I still have to remind myself every now and again um, especially in retirement yeah that it's okay great wow so many things that we could talk about I've yeah. got other questions but I'm also cognizant of time frames so I won't keep you for too much longer I guess just any recommendations that you have for athletes or an individual with a vision impairment how do you get into sports and and you know obviously you had to have guides how do you find a guide like I guess any recommendations that you have for athletes who may be interested in becoming an alpine skier so I guess the the best way to get into winter sport because that's where I know the pathways that are being built would be first port of contact is Disabled Winter Sport, which is a charity organisation run out of New South Wales and Victoria in Australia, and they have 
recreational programs. They have pathway programs for people who want to get into racing eventually. So they're they're really really good. They run camps during the during the winter season out of Falls Creek, Hotham, Perisher, and Threadbow. I think. If that isn't the way you want to go, there is always adaptive instructors if you just want to learn how to ski, which is fantastic. So adaptive instructors, they're, again, at most resorts in Australia as well. And do you know um, if they're also... Or if you, you know, already know how to ski and want to go into... Sorry, do you know if they're also available in, in overseas in other resorts, like in the US and, and European countries? Definitely, Adapt- yeah. So parasports is really popular overseas so i i myself um i decided to take myself on a a trip to wyoming um mm-hmm. a couple of years back right before covid started and i reached out to the disabled organization that worked out of jackson hole and just said that i was an experienced like a really experienced skier and wanted to come over but i needed a guide because my guide couldn't travel with me that year mm-hmm. and so they they hooked me up with a guide for the week um, i think so, you know, I, I paid for their services, obviously, at like a discounted rate. That, uh, I guess a non-disabled person would have to, would be charged for the same mm-hmm. kind of thing. And I was able to go to a different country, to a resort that I'd never been to, and meet and ski with someone who, you know, I still call a mate, like now, a couple mm. of years later, for an entire, for like eight days, which was fantastic. Wow. So, and... These same services are available throughout North America. I think there's a couple of resorts in Japan as well mm. mm-hmm. um, and Europe. Um, right. France, so- Scotland, a lot of indoor, like the indoor slopes in the UK as well have adaptive programs, um, I've noticed. Ah. Yeah, that was a bit of a blowout to me too. Where else? Germany and Austria are really big for adaptive sports. Spain have one of the best blind skiing teams going around for years. So they're getting out there and I think it's just calling around resorts and figuring out where the adaptive program is based for that particular region, but they do exist. Mm. And then in terms of other sports, you know, if if ski racing isn't for you, I don't know why because it's fantastic, but (laughs) then reaching out to... Paralympics Australia do come and try days for all all Paralympic sport and some sports that aren't actually in the Paralympics either to get people to get young kids and and adults that want to be active into sport or to introduce mm. them to the kind of sports that are available you know for the disabled community um, yep. which is fantastic awesome. and then you've got a lot of so a quick google search basically will let you know what's out there and you know, if you're living in a rural area like I was as a kid, pop down to your local sporting club. If there's a sport that you're interested in, pop down there and chat to the manager or the coach and just say, this is what you want to do. This is what you want to try. And the most time, people will find a way to involve someone if they're just educated as to what a para-athlete will need. Most yep. Coaches and sports want to be inclusive. They want people, they want members of the team, they want participation, they want people who are really enthusiastic about what's going on. And as long as that coach, regardless of whether they've dealt with a disabled person in their life personally or in sport before, as long as they're educated and guided as to what a young disabled child will need to participate fully, they're more, most most instances I've found nowadays are more more than willing to accommodate if they possibly can, if mm. the situation 
and sport is appropriate and safe. Yep. And, you know, in terms of being a guide, can anyone really be a guide if, you know, as long as they can obviously ski, um, I'd be useless. Um, so, but can anyone really be a guide? It's really just a matter of understanding what communication you need. If you are at an intermediate level of skiing, you can be a guide. Mm-hmm. It's all about learning about what your visually, what your, your athlete needs. Yeah. And you can start in the recreational sphere through Disabled Women's Sports Australia. They actually have guide training programs. So if you want to learn okay. how to be a guide, the training programs are there. They exist. They run for free. I think I think all you have to do is get a ticket or have a ticket or something along those lines. I can't remember. It may have changed since. I've actually done the guiding program. I, I oh. am a certified guide. <laughs> I wow. would never trust me, but I've done the program. <laughs> that blows me away. <laughs> I think that's awesome that yeah, you're certified as a guide. I did not do the. I think I did it more as an educational thing more than anything else. I needed, mm-hmm. like, I, I wanted to know how, like, to guide a sit ski, for example, and and how they were teaching visually impaired people to ski. I, I, mm. I personally wanted to know that. So that's how accommodating disabled women sport is. They took a disabled person and taught them how to be a guide. So cool. if I can do it, anyone who is even an intermediate level of skier can go and learn how to guide. Yeah, fantastic. Um, yeah. yeah, so I highly recommend it. It's fun and rewarding and you'll create friendships that are yeah, with you for life. Lifelong, yeah, you know? awesome. I've trusted every guide I had with my life. Yeah. Well, you have to, don't you? <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Definitely. Yeah. Well, Mel, you've shared with us lots of things and, and I really appreciate it and I certainly I'm aware that we need to let you go, but before you go, there's one last question and we need to know what your favourite food is. Oh, so I personally think, sorry, I'm going to cheat here. I'm going to do two <laughs> favourite foods. Okay. I think if there was no other food in the world other than potato and chicken, I would live a very happy life. <laughs> Any particular way it needs to be prepared. See, that's the beauty of both of those things. Versatility is fantastic. <laughs> so um, you'll take them any way they I, come. I, I, um, any way they come. I, I, I love both variations. Like, for example, I just learned how to cook chicken adobo, oh. which is a, a Filipino dish, yep. I think. Mm-hmm. And it's basically chicken cooked in soy sauce, vinegar with, with garlic, soy sauce and vinegar with garlic, a tiny bit of brown sugar, and what else does it have in it? Yeah, legit, that's it. <laughs> Simple yeah, as. That's it. Simple and honestly, I think I ate it for meal prep for the past three weeks straight. It's fantastic. <laughs> oh, so it, people need to send in their best preparation uh, tips for chicken so that you don't end up just getting sick of one and need a few more ideas. <laughs> exactly. I'd take any preparation tip for chicken. Ever, because it's fantastic. Cool. Well, thank you, Mel. I really appreciate your time and it's been great chatting to you and I'm really pleased that you were willing to share with us some of your experience and and some of your journey. It's certainly been a really interesting one, I think, and I hope that all goes well in your pursuits of being a sports physio. I know you've got a lot to contribute to a lot of athletes so thank you for your time oh anytime it's been it's been a lot of fun thanks for having me on this Liz it was um it was great to chat
I think Mel's experience with the impact that her initial epilepsy medication had on her ability to express how much she was training and to get everything out of that is a really good lesson. It took a long time for her to sort that out and to get the best medication and to a great scenario for her, but it's worth exploring. If things aren't working well for you as an athlete or if you're athletes, if you're a coach or a practitioner, you have an athlete who seems to be doing all the right things, but it, it's just not coming through in their training. It's always worth looking at medication and interactions that they may have and whether there's something better out there for them on an individual basis, especially when it comes to performance sport, as opposed to medication that's just simply used because that's the standard. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast and that you'll share it with your friends and family and social media. Please leave us any feedback that you have on our website. I hope you'll join us next time when we talk to Mike Derner, a paracycling coach.